Maggie Long's granddaughter, Brinley. Great-granddaughter, Brinley. Miss Linda's sister, what's her name? Francis Carver. Francis Carver's having a biopsy on some uh, nodules on her neck. Who's that? Ann Carver had wrist surgery today. John Runge said they'd replaced his skull from the incident, from the injury, but still touch and go. They're still waiting to see. Man, I have an unspoken plan. Okay. Who else? That's right. Uh, Tim Clayton is awaiting results from a stress test. If you need notes, please let make make a note to Fran there. Other things we can be praying for. Now, Stan, Stan, were you telling me the truth about Friday? All right, so Stan and Linda Harris this Friday will celebrate 50 years of marriage, which is, which is quite something. Congratulations. Stan is a blessed man. Amen. <laughs> All right. Well, let's... Um, Let's pray together as we begin. Lord, we do thank you that we can come to you in prayer. And uh, Lord, we do come to you praising you for who you are and praising you that you are our God and that you are steady and unchanging and that you are all loving. God, we praise you that you are all knowing. And it's because of all these things, Lord, that we can come to you confidently in prayer, come to you with our hurts and our worries and our anxieties, Lord, to come to you with our praises. Uh, We do give thanks, God, for Stan and Linda and the 50 years that you've given them in their marriage. And, God, we pray for many more. And, Lord, we pray that they would be a uh, couple that exhibits the the beauty and the power of the gospel through how they go about their marriage. Lord, I pray that for all of the marriages here at this church, that that's how we seek to love and care for one another in the same way that you have done for your people. Lord, we do pray for for Brindley, Allison's student, and, and Maggie's great-granddaughter. As she's in the hospital, Lord, we don't know the details, but we know that you are fully aware and that you are uh, in charge of her life and her health. And so, God, we, we ask and we plead for her life and for her health and that she might recover, be able to return to her normal pace of life and school and family and friends. But Lord, ultimately, we trust you in that. Lord, we pray for Francis and for Anne and for John as they've had surgery and are facing surgery. 
Lord, we know that uh, there's a lot of anxiety tied up in approaching surgery and waiting on results. And so, God, I pray that you would just give them a peace of mind that comes only from you, knowing that you're in control of, of whatever the outcome is. And just as we talked about this past Sunday, that you are in the boat with us, even in the fiercest of storms, that you take us into those storms to mature our faith. So, Lord, we pray that for them. Lord, we pray for Cindy and many others, Lord, who have, who have many things on their hearts. And, uh, God, we, we know that you know them all. We can trust that you are fully aware of our lives. Lord, we pray for Tim as he is awaiting the, the results of this test. We pray, God, for positive results. We pray for health and for healing. Thank you, Lord, for Debbie Sue and how she cares for him. Uh, and as they reminded us on Sunday, I think he said 43 years coming up for them in marriage. Uh, Lord, I pray that we all set our, set our minds and our hearts and our lives on honoring you in all things. Lord, as we turn to the Word now, we pray that you would open it to us, that we might see your wondrous, uh, wondrous works and wondrous truths. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Yes, ma'am. Yes. It was a good Sunday. Good. Um, Matthew 7 is where we're at tonight. And I'm going to do my best to finish the sermon. So we, I think we started it in August or September. And tonight we will wrap it up. And once we get to the end tonight, I'll tell you where we're going next. But uh, Matthew chapter 7, we will pick up reading in verse 13. Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So I mentioned last week, is that me ringing? 
Do I need to move? That's fine, okay. Maybe it's just me. Maybe there's something wrong in my mind. <laughs> uh, I mentioned last week that uh, at verse 12, it kind of ends the teaching. that Jesus then moves into application. And so verse 13 through the end of chapter 7, Jesus is essentially putting a choice to us. He's saying, which I put there at the top, make your choice. Choose to follow Jesus or choose to reject Jesus. So we, we've come to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount as Matthew has recorded it. And he's putting the question to us, which path will you choose? And so this conclusion contains three different warnings to three groups of people. The first one, if you notice, is Jesus' disciples. We started this, the, the sermon off. It says Jesus went up on the mountain and his disciples came to him. And so the sermon primarily is directed towards those who are true followers of Jesus Christ. And if you will remember kind of the bulk and the material of the sermon as we've looked at it over the last few months, doesn't make sense to non-Christians. Most of it is directed to those who know Jesus and who follow Jesus and who treasure Jesus. Now, we need to keep in mind that there were more than the disciples there. There was the crowd. And then there were also the religious leaders. And so the first warning goes to the disciples where Jesus is calling the disciples to examine themselves to be sure they are truly members of the kingdom of God. He's saying this is what true Christianity looks like. If you are a follower of Jesus, these things will be true of your life. It starts with the Beatitudes. It starts with being emptied of all that's natural, and it, and it, and it moves along to where we see true followers of Jesus live it out. They've made their choice. Their choice is to follow Jesus. Well, the second one, he goes to the crowds, and he calls upon the crowds to carefully consider the alternatives. There's, there's following Jesus, and then there is rejecting Jesus, and he says, consider both and be, do it carefully. And then the last warning is to the religious establishment or to the Pharisees or to the, to the professional religious folks. And the warning to them is that they will be liable, they'll be guilty of leading people astray. That false teaching in the world comes with a consequence. Leading people astray comes with a consequence. That God does not deal lightly with those who teach His truth wrongly. Which is why it, put, it puts pastors in a precarious position. Because my whole life is wrapped up in teaching people the things of God. And so if I do it wrongly, the Bible says I'm going to answer for that. Even if I do it innocently. If I, if I am teaching what I think is right, but it's wrong, I'm going to be accountable for that. But at the same time, and I'll talk about this again in a few moments. At the same time, my job as a pastor is to guard the teaching of the church. Paul says that to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Watch the doctrine. Guard the doctrine. Guard the teaching. For in doing so, it says you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So it's good to have a pastor who cares about what's taught. You're welcome. Amen. <laughs> but Jesus is warning these religious leaders who are leading people astray. And his point is, you're going to stand guilty for that. So the warnings to these three groups of people take on four different forms. 
in this conclusion. The first one, Jesus talks about two gates and two roads. He then talks about two... Now, let me say this as a disclaimer. Uh, I type these notes up fairly quickly, and you will find lots of typos in this, which, for me, pretty irritating. But I didn't have time to reprint them, and that would have been a waste. So just know, uh, when that says two kings of prophets, that means two kinds of prophets. And then we'll see two kinds of disciples and ultimately two foundations. Uh, and so we'll start with the first one, the two, the two gates and the two roads. Jesus says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. So the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. This idea of, of two paths of living is not new, and it's actually a very old idea. And uh, Jews are very familiar with it, the right way and the wrong way. Or like we, we like to say, hey, it's my way or the highway. There's not a third way. And so they were very familiar with these two ways of living, and Jesus said, all right, there's two ways here. So he's, he's kind of he's using one of their cultural ideas. There's two ways. There's, there's God's way, which is what Jesus is saying, and then there's the wrong way. And so he picks up on this, uh, picks up on this idea and leaves them no doubt, or leaves them no room for, for, for arguing or, or disagreeing. He says, this is the only options. He's clear. Now, we tend not to like that kind of clarity. And let me ask you this. How often do you put that kind of clarity to somebody? Usually it takes the form of, hey, you're wrong. Depends on how, how heated the argument is, right? Or how, who you're talking to. If you're talking to somebody in your house, that probably comes out fairly frequently. But if it's somebody in the world, I mean, we, we're, we're a little more cautious with that. But Jesus is saying, hey, it's, it's either come with me or you're wrong. Those who enter by the wide gate, he says, will find themselves on the path to destruction. So the broad gate, Jesus says, is inviting. It's wide it seems very attractive. It has plenty of room to, quote, live a comfortable life. This is where the folks who, we've talked about this, trying to have a foot in both kingdoms. I've got my, my one foot in God's kingdom, my Sunday, my Wednesday behavior. I, I pray, do my devotional. But I've also got my this foot in the world because I really love the world and my goals. You know, I've got some real strict goals for my life that... I need to see accomplished, and my prayers reflect that I want God to bless my goals, that kind of thing. And Jesus says that this wide way is not only wide, it's easy, it's comfortable, it's full of people. Uh, you see there, I noted culture fits in this, in this gate, religious behavior fits in this gate, being a good person fits in this gate, enjoying the world, my goals, my hopes, my dreams, they all fit. Because the wide gate says, I can have salvation, and God wants me to have all this other stuff, too. I'm not listening to necessarily what the Scripture says. I might bring the Bible in when it helps or when, it, when, it, when, it, when it's convenient, but that's not really what's guarding it. The term wide that Jesus uses in verse 13 implies spaciousness. It's a lot of room. It's a big path. It's a big gate. You don't have to turn sideways and suck it in to get in. It just, you just fit as you are. And so it's like a first-class seat on an international flight. 
Anybody ever flown? Anybody ever flown internationally? Anybody ever had to walk past those people sitting in the first class seats on your way to coach? You pray for them on the way back, right? Lord, I hope they enjoy their space. But it's like that. There's a lot of space. That seat lays down. In the newer planes, you've got your own little cubby. All the amenities you want, it's, it's comfortable. And Jesus' point, however, is that this comfort and ease is deceiving. This wide gate, this wide path where all kinds of stuff fits, where it's comfortable, it's deceiving because it says the end is destruction. So it's like saying, well, what good is a first-class seat on a plane if you know the plane is going to crash? It's no good whatsoever. I'd rather be cramped in the, uh, in the upper baggage compartment on a plane that doesn't crash rather than having the luxury of a first-class seat on a plane that's going to crash. And so he says that don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the wide way. The narrow gate, he says, is much more restrictive, and it's limited to those... It's limited to, to Jesus and those who follow his manner of discipleship. So, here's something that we just need to understand. When we say words, when the church uses words, especially Bible words, we need to understand that they come with a meaning. They come predefined. We don't get to, we don't get to take these words out and say, all right, here's what I think it means. What are some, what are some words or concepts that people do that with biblically? Give you an example. Marriage is one. What's another one? Love. Right? God is love, and that means yada, yada, yada. God would want me to be happy. This, whatever makes me happy, thus God wants me to have this. Or God wouldn't want me to not have that. Or some other examples of where we, we can redefine biblical terms. Yeah, rest. Truth. truth. Yeah, you've got your truth. I've got mine. Right. Say again. Sin. Sin. Yeah. What is sin? What's not sin? Good. What's good and what's not good? Yeah. So you see, I mean, we could make a long list of these things where people will take a biblical word that's defined biblically. And we try to make it into something else, make it into something more comfortable, make it into something that includes something that we don't want to let go of. But Jesus' point, the narrowness of the gate means that we don't get to bring our own preconceived ideas. It's we conform to Jesus or we don't. We conform to what Jesus is teaching, the way that he's walking, the way that he says we are to live, or we are in sin. Sin's also defined. Missing the mark is what it means. The mark being God's holiness, anything that's outside of that is sin. And so, just like the term wide is a spacious term, the term narrow is a spacious term as well. It just means lack of. This one you do have to turn sideways. It's not this free-for-all. It's not everybody is trying to get in and have no issue. It's more of a hey, you've got to intentionally walk through this door. You've got to intentionally move into this, into this gate, into this path. On page six there on notes, or the, the back of the first page, you see those traveling on the narrow road will experience difficulty. 
Jesus says that. They'll experience difficulty, especially because of the challenge of Jesus' way of discipleship will prompt opposition, even persecution from those of the wide way. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus has already said that. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, he says, blessed are the persecuted. Remember that? You're going to be persecuted. People are going to hate you because of holiness. Jesus said, they hated me. They hated the prophets. They're going to hate you. And we even talked about it as well, too. Where did most of Jesus' persecution come from? From the religious folks, right? From the church folks. The outside people really liked him. They didn't necessarily adhere to his teaching. They didn't necessarily want to become his disciple. But they weren't offended by him because he was healing them and performing miracles. And so it didn't come from the outside. It came from the inside. And so what, what does that tell us about this narrow way? Well, we'll see in just a few moments, but what it tells us is that inside any given religious body, there are people on both paths. There are people inside of this church that are on the narrow way and some that are on the wide way, and they don't know it. Which is why the warning is, make sure you're actually following Jesus. So, which comes first, the gate or the path? Do I walk through the gate to get on the path, or am I on the path and eventually I have to choose between the gate? Because sometimes people think, well, I've got time to choose which gate I want to go through. There'll be time at some point where I can make my choice, even when we're confronted by uh, uh, a life cut short like with Kobe Bryant recently. When he died on Sunday, he didn't expect to die. But for some reason, we think our death is going to happen on our terms, on our, on our time, and a time in which we're comfortable with. But Jesus' point is not that we're all on the same path and eventually we'll kind of funnel into these two gates. His point is the way in which we respond now is what's important. Now that should sound familiar from Mark. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. With the measure that you measure with, so it'll be measured to you is what he says. The way in which you respond to Jesus is what you will get. And so... The choosing of the gates, the choosing of the way of living is something that we do here and now, which determines the path that we follow along. That makes sense. So his statement is intentional. The gate is first, the path is second. And in the context, when he says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life, Jesus himself, he's saying, I'm the gate. I am the narrow gate. He is the way to life. He is the way through which we enter into the kingdom of heaven. John 14, verse 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, is what he says. So the way of discipleship stretches throughout one's early years as a Christian and ultimately leads to eternal life. I talked about this uh, either this past Sunday or the Sunday before. I used the word sanctification. It's that, that name we attach to the process where the Holy Spirit is, is, is making us more like Jesus, where he's transforming us bit by bit. It'd be really nice if he just do it all at once. But he transforms us bit by bit. A lot of times it's through one another. And eventually 
we die and go to be with God and the process is completed. Now, uh, do any of your children have a rock tumbler or have they ever had a rock tumbler? Nobody? Anybody know what a rock tumbler is? A rock polisher? All right, so uh, who gave us ours? What? Oh, my wife's lovely mother gave our oldest son a rock tumbler. And so he's all into that kind of stuff. And you put these rough rocks in this uh, container and you put it on this machine and it turns and, and, and it's polishing the rocks. And it makes this sound, which is not all that bad like when it gets started. Unbeknownst to Tara and I, it has to run for like 37 days, nonstop. And it's, it's in their bathroom, which is directly above my bathroom. And so for the last, every night since Christmas, really, I have heard this anytime I go in the bathroom. And I'm just reminded, you know, it hit me the other night. I'm like, hey, that's, that's exactly what sanctification is like. Sometimes it makes a noise. Sometimes it's aggravating. But the Holy Spirit is at all times shaping us and polishing us and changing us. And it's just this ongoing, continual process that will be finished when we get to heaven and not until then. So although we have completed our first round with the rocks, I'm sure there'll be another one. Uh, sanctification won't stop. It won't stop until we go to be with the Lord. And so the assumption is that once we enter the narrow gate, which is faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, that we are put into this process of changing. So, one of the things that I tell uh, uh, couples getting ready to get married is you should expect to change one another. Like Part of marriage is these two things. You, you're coming together and you change each other. And that's a good thing. That's how it should be, that you are encouraging one another towards Jesus Christ. You are encouraging one another to be more like Christ. And so, by God's grace, when you celebrate 43 years or 50 years, you say, hey, look how far Christ has brought me. Praise God. <laughs> now I can look back over our years of marriage and see how God has transformed me. For the better, I hope. But that's how sanctification works. It comes in a process and it comes as we interact with one another. It comes as we study the word. It comes as we walk along the narrow path. Jesus says false prophets, false prophets religious opposition, worldliness. They all offer this, this surface level appeal that looks way better. If you've got an old car that the air is broken and you know, one of the doors doesn't work and it stinks and you see somebody drive by in a brand new car, the appeal there is, hey, I want, I want that car. And Jesus says, don't be deceived by the shiny newness. Now, if you have a new car, that's fine. I hope you enjoy it. Not my point. The point is, Jesus says, don't be distracted by the beauty, the, the, the attractiveness that the world will offer because ultimately it's, it's death. It has the power to lead you away from what's real. So, any questions on those two paths, the two gates? All right, this next section has the potential to garner some questions. So I'm ready for those. But Jesus says, beware of false prophets in verse 15. 
He said, they'll come among you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. So he says, along the narrow road, disciples are warned to watch out for false teachers and false prophets. The problem is we think we can spot these people. We think we can spot them 10 miles out. And Jesus says, no, that's not, that's not how it works. They look like you. They sound like you. You will even probably think they are among you as far as like an actual true believer. But at some point, their intentions will come out. G- uh, 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 Matthew harps on this a number of times in his gospel. The Old Testament warns about this. Second Peter is about this. The whole letter of Second Peter is about beware of false teachers. Uh, if you ever read the introduction to Galatians, Paul, who planted the church in Galatia, or the, or the churches, rather, it's a, it's a region, says, I'm so quickly astonished that you've departed from what I've taught you. You've let other people come in and teach you things that aren't true. And so he's dealing with that idea there, that false prophets, false teachers are just a, they're just a danger. And so the warnings are against those who attempt, whether knowingly or not, to lead people away from God by falsely speaking for God. That can take on all kinds of forms. And I'll give you some examples in just a moment. But false prophets or false teachers first seem to be genuine members of God's flock by their talk, by their association with a group of people or a church, but their intentions are evil, like a wolf who ravages a flock for its own gratification. You've probably all seen the cartoon where the wolf puts on the sheep cover and, and creeps into the, to the flock. That's what he's talking about. And Jesus gives us insight here into his earlier teaching, which we talked about last week on how to, on how to judge rightly. Now, we're not, we're not making pronouncements on, yeah, you're, you're definitely a Christian and you're definitely not, right? That's, that's, God says that's, that's his work. But we are called to discern. We are called to judge appropriately the things that we are to judge, which is teaching is one of those. When you hear teaching, you should ask, is this biblical? Paul talks about that in Acts 17. The Bereans, they heard what he said and they went home and they searched the scriptures to see if it was true. So anytime somebody says, hey, the Bible says this or God says this, you should say, but does this agree? And the reality is, brothers and sisters, if we don't know this, then we're, we're, we're intentionally making ourselves weak. We're putting ourselves at risk. So he tells us to maintain a balance between not judging a brother or sister while also not naively accepting anything anybody says about God or about the Bible. Jesus tells his disciples to be wisely discerning. When somebody comes in and starts speaking on behalf of God or speaking on behalf of the Bible, Jesus points to their fruits. Don't just listen to what they say. Look at how they live. This is why the Bible doesn't give any kind of professional qualifications for pastors. You ever notice that? 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, God never says, find you a man with a seminary degree. Now, I like seminary. I've been to seminary three times. But that doesn't make me a qualified pastor. It helps me in that task. But what God emphasizes in Scripture is that his pastors are men of godly character. That you watch how they live. You watch how the gospel comes out in their life. And so Jesus says, look at their fruit. Look at how they live. Uh, All that a person says and does reveals who she or she truly is. 
there's a quote I like by um, a guy named Ernest Hemingway. You probably know him, know of him as a writer. He says, when people talk, I know what he says next. He says, when people talk, listen completely. Because when we're just talking, when we're just, when we're just shooting the breeze, when we're, when we're engaged in a, in a passionate debate, we're actually revealing what we really believe. Because out of our mouths, Jesus says, our, our heart speaks. And so when people talk, listen, because it's through our speech, it's through our living that what we truly believe, who we truly are, comes out. And so Jesus' point is that repentance in the heart produces a life of repentance and holiness. And so a man or a woman who's teaching the Bible who lacks seminary but who possesses a godly heart is far better than somebody who has all the seminary degrees in the world but doesn't know God. Paul teaches the same thing in his letter to the Galatian churches. He tells them, examine those teachers. They came in, you let them come in, he says right up front, they led you astray and you didn't evaluate their lives. You didn't get to know them. You didn't look at what kind of men or women they were. And so Jesus calls his church to carefully evaluate any teacher, any prophet that comes into their community to look not only at their message. Now that's important. We need to consider the the substance of what people are saying. Is it doctrinally sound? Does it accord with what God has said in here? That is crucially important. But along with that, along with their message, we need to evaluate their lives. Are they living consistently? Are they living out consistently kingdom righteousness? Because the two go hand in hand. He then gives a helpful, albeit simplistic example by saying, hey, a dead tree, a diseased tree can't produce good fruit. People can say things that are right, but if their lives are wicked, guess what's coming out? Wickedness. And a good tree, someone who is really of the spirit, they're going to produce spiritual fruit. And so it's not, it's not that this is an overly difficult thing. This is where right judgment comes into play. So here's, some, here's, some, uh, here's what I was talking about that may spark some questions. We need to make a distinction between harmful, malicious, false teachers versus bad doctrine, bad teaching. Because there's a difference between those who intentionally seek to mislead the church and those who unintentionally mislead. There are people who, with the right intentions, say the wrong things. And so we need to be able to discern between both of those. Uh, You've probably all met well-intentioned, ignorant people. My son insists with a full and good heart on things that are just flat wrong. And I have to tell him, son, you just, you don't know yet. I I appreciate your passion. Sometimes there's too much passion, but you're wrong. There are people that are good, that are well-intentioned, that are just wrong. And so we must discern and protect against both the intentionally wicked false teacher, but also the unintentional false teacher, because false teaching is harmful. So here are seven broad categories of false teachers that exist in almost every single church. First one is the heretic. He's the most dangerous. He's the one who teaches false doctrine. He's the one who alters the word of God. Um, We would put uh, Jehovah's Witnesses under this category. They teach heretical doctrine. 
For instance, if you ever, if you ever have a debate with a Jehovah's Witness or, or, or get, find yourself in one, and you go to Scripture in John chapter 1, you might know what our Bible says, in the beginning was what? The Word. If you look at a New World translation, anybody know what the New World translation says, which is their translation? It says, in the beginning was a word. And so there, is, there has been an altering of the text. There's been an altering of the message. And that, we would say, is a malicious handling of God's word. That's heretical doctrine. Second, we find uh, what's called the charlatan or the, 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 the performer. This is the one who just is self-interested. He just wants a position for his personal gain. However, that group of people, or specifically the church or the committee or the group, however that group of people can enrich his life or can help him gain uh, whatever, or her, you know, just not just a male thing. Whatever can help them get what they want, they'll say it. They'll do it. They'll use scripture in that way. A third category of false teacher in the, in the church is the prophet. This is the one who hears from or offers a word from God outside of God's word. Now, part of what we hold to as evangelical Christians, as Baptists, we hold to the doctrine of the sufficiency of the word of God. So here's what we mean by that. The Bible is God's total word that he wanted us to know, that it is closed in the sense of there's not, nobody's adding anything else to it. God has given us all that we need right here. And that it's enough for all that we need for life, for godliness, for salvation, for training in righteousness. It's not exhaustive. God doesn't tell us exactly how our lives are going to unfold. God doesn't tell us what shirts we're going to wear. God doesn't tell us exactly what's going to happen. So it's not exhaustive in that sense, but it is sufficient in that God has spoken all that he wanted to speak. Does that make sense? So when we say the prophet is a false teacher, what we mean, this is the person who hears something that's not in the Bible. The person who finds, finds teaching that's not in the Bible and says, well, God told me this. Now, what, what's, I'm going I'm to deal with a rather popular teacher in just a moment that falls into this category. What's the problem when somebody says, God told me? Can, can God tell you something? You know, don't be scared. <laughs> can God tell you something? Yes, God can speak to you. But what's the problem when somebody says, hey, God said this to me. God told me this. Right, he wouldn't hide it from other people. But what if it's wrong? It's hard to argue with God when somebody says, God told me this. Well, is it in the Bible? If it, doesn't, if it doesn't find a place in the Bible, but God told it to me, then what we're saying is the Bible is not sufficient anymore. It's not exhaustive anymore. It's not, it's not complete. God needed to add something that was not in here. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Now let me be clear. God speaks to his people. But when God speaks, God does not speak to us in ways that contradict his word. 
And I will say this, I believe firmly that God speaks to us primarily through his word. This is God's final word. God doesn't need to tell me anything else that's not in here. And if I feel like God is speaking to me in my spirit, then I should come to this and say, all right, does this line up? Because sometimes we can think things that aren't, we can think God's leading us in a certain way when he's not. Just like we can redefine biblical words with good intentions that are just wrong. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, Fourth one is the abuser, the one who uses God's word improperly for self-gain or the abuse of others. Whether that's physical abuse or emotional abuse or sexual abuse, we're living in an an abusive culture. The SBC, are you all familiar with what's going on with the Southern Baptist Convention and sexual abuse crisis? If you're not, it's a huge crisis right now. Uh, The Houston Chronicle, which is a paper, produced three lengthy articles last year documenting uh, sexual abuse crisis inside of Southern Baptist churches. And it's a big deal. And these people are in the church. Now, we as a church, as Theresa Baptist, are taking proactive steps with that, putting in background checks and sexual abuse awareness training, and we're, we're, we're working through how do we receive children in our care properly and to guard them so that we know they're going back with the right people and making sure that the right people in our church are working with our children because God cares about how we care about our children. And, but these people are in the church. And Peter talks about in Second Peter, which I said a minute ago that Second Peter is about false teachers, Peter warns that these people are in churches. So we need to be aware. We need to be discerning. A fifth one is the divider, the one who sows disunity among the body, the one who sows strife or conflict instead of love and unity. This person might make a major, a minor doctrine, a major issue. Hey, if you don't agree with me on this particular point of this particular doctrine, you're not saved. I've met people like that. Perhaps you've met people like that. But this is the kind of activity that they do. They might introduce an unbiblical doctrine or seek to undermine church leadership. The divider might seek to do that. And that would qualify them as a false teacher. Uh, Paul talks about the tickler, the one who cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what men want. I want you to like me. I want you to care about me. And therefore, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. Because if I tell you what you want to hear and it makes you happy, guess what you're going to feel about me? Hey, that guy tells me what I want to hear. I want to listen to him. Now, don't get me wrong. I like telling, I like telling nice things. But I'm convictional about telling biblical things. Which means sometimes we have to speak hard things. And then the speculator. This is the one who sets aside the bulk of the Bible to focus on something small. Or something prophetic in the future. So I, I, was, uh, I had a friend of mine who once told me, yeah, 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 I've got the gospel. I want to get to the meaty stuff in Revelation. I'm thinking, what? The meaty stuff? <laughs> Sometimes we can get so fixated on, hey, this is going to happen in the future. Or let's figure out everything that's going on in Revelation that we can begin to neglect the holiness that God calls us to walk in now. We can trust God with the future because you know what? There's a lot of faithful brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ that have a lot of different positions on Revelation and we can trust that God has it all figured out and I need to focus on right now today which if you recall, Matthew 6, what's Jesus say? Focus on today. Be focused on the kingdom today. 
All right, so some historical uh, examples of false teachers and false teachings. Uh, Islam would be one, originating around 632 on the uh, Arabian Peninsula. Muhammad claimed he got uh, revelations in a cave on top of a mountain over a period of about 30 years, which is where the, the Quran comes from. And if you read the Quran, it practices what's called the law of abrogation, which means his later revelations that he got later in his life, if they contradicted some earlier revelation, the later one wins out. So you find all kind of contradictions in the Quran, but the ones that he got the last are the most authoritative. That's an example of false teaching. Joseph Smith and Mormonism. If you know anything about Mormonism, Joseph Smith claims to have received a special vision from God contained on seven golden plates delivered by, I think, Gabriel. And he wrote them down in the Book of Mormon, and then Gabriel took the plates away. And they claim to be uh, the latter-day saints, which means that God uh, withheld teaching from the time of the disciples up until the, the 1850s, I think, is when Mormonism came about. And so these are the last days, according to Mormon theology, and they are the saints of the last days. So they've added doctrine to the Bible. They hold to the Bible. They change some doctrinal truth like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, but... They also, add, they also have the Book of Mormon, which they view as a, equal to the, the Bible. God, my time, man. Y'all just speed up time when I get in here. That's what it is. All right, so here's some modern day that some of them may surprise you, some may not. Uh, Joel Osteen is a modern example of a false teacher. He teaches a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. He teaches that, that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And while God doesn't withhold happiness and health and wealth from all of his people, he doesn't promise it to all of his people either. And his, his teachings, his books, are devoid of biblical truth. Now, he uses the Bible sparingly. Here and there, he'll quote a Bible verse or he'll try to make a point. But when you examine the whole of his teaching and his approach, he is a deceptive wolf, and he is dangerous. Joyce Meyer would fall into the same camp. She is a very popular Bible teacher, but a lot of her teaching does not accord with the truth of Scripture. That She, she uses truths, and the way she teaches would not find agreement in the Bible. Uh, Rob Bell. Rob Bell is... In his probably his 40s now, his late 40s, a very popular megachurch pastor for a while, and then totally rejects the faith and says, I don't believe that anymore. But he maintained this cult following of young people, and he's very popular now. And one of his, one of his well-known disciples is, um, his name just left my, my mind, the, the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. Aaron, yeah, Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is a very close friend and disciple of Rob Bell. Rob Bell wrote a book just recently that says, if, a, if God is loving, hell can't exist. So that's an example of modern-day false teaching. Uh, Benny Hinn, if you know anything about Benny Hinn, he's a, another health, wealth, prosperity gospel. In, in, in late days, I've heard accounts that Benny Hinn has rejected all of his teaching and all of his ministry and has, and has been saved. I don't know if that's true, and I, I pray to God that it's true. And I hope that that's true, but most of his ministry has been focused on him and not on God. People come for what Benny Hinn could do for them, not for what God can do for them. This last one may, may bother some folks. Sarah Young and the devotional Jesus Calling. 
Now, this is where I think we need to make a distinction between a willful false teacher and an unintentional. Because Sarah Young is a very popular writer and her book, Jesus Calling, has exploded. Here's the problem. Here's the danger with Jesus Calling. Sarah says in her book that what she has received is not the Bible. If you've ever read the preface, she says, what I'm going to say is not authoritative, but then goes on to talk about how God has spoken things to her. And the point, if we're not careful with Jesus calling, is that we can come away with Sarah was given an experience outside the Bible. That she's, she's advocating for, yeah, the Bible's good, but I needed something more. Now, here's where I, I say we've got to be careful. Because what we don't want to say is that the Bible isn't enough. And unfortunately, that's where Sarah leaves us if we're not careful. I don't think she intentionally takes us there. I think she probably really did have a faithful experience with God. But the unfortunate result of her teaching is that a lot of people have thought there's something more outside of the Bible. Now, let me pause. I have no doubt that I may have stepped on some toes. Questions or comments? Not one. I have one. Yes, ma'am. Just a comment. I get, well, not really a comment, but do you think, okay, I've heard so many people who use Jesus Call, mm-hmm. and I have given it as gifts. And people, myself included, have felt that a certain devotional really spoke mm-hmm. to something they were experiencing that day. Yep. Or something going on in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not saying that, you know, if, if, if you use Jesus' calling and arrive at a biblical truth, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. What I'm saying is what, what the, 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 the thrust of that book is, is that there's something needed more than the Bible. She says, I needed a deeper experience with the Bible. And she even goes on to say, uh, she says, Jesus said to me, and in a, num- in a number of places, she, she quotes what Jesus said to her. If you've, if you've read the book, then you know that she says in there, Jesus said this to me. And she assigns words to Jesus. So going back to what I said earlier, when we say, what's the danger of saying God told me? It gets us into dangerous territory. Does that make sense? It does, but I also know that she credits scripture. She does. Sure. And if that, and, and see, here's where it gets so tricky and so dangerous is because uh, a lot of these other false teachers will do that too. Not that what she's doing is wrong. And I, that's what I'm saying. The whole book is not wrong. But the idea behind it, if we're not careful, can be very dangerous. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am.
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a place for the for the teaching of prophecy in the church, without a doubt. But it shouldn't occupy any any larger of a place than say uh, the the ethical instruction for the church. Absolutely. Other questions? Yes. Is there is there something a specific point you're asking me about that? Yes. Them being false teachers? Yes. Now, most of these folks, I haven't put anybody on here that I haven't read. I've read their books. I, I can I can interact with their books. So I, I, I'm not saying I'm not. Nobody's on here I'm not, I'm not familiar with. So let me say this. If, if I have offended any of you, which is possible, come talk to me afterwards. And this, this should not be a divisive thing. This should be something that we have an open dialogue about. And it's something we should care deeply about, which is why I, I cared enough to say something. It had been a lot easier just to skip right over that. Like, hey, watch out for bad people. They're out there. Let's move on. But, as I said earlier, part of my job, part of my, my God-given task is to guard the doctrine of the church. For by doing so, I save not only myself, but my hearers. So, there's also room for disagreement. Let's be, let's be clear about that. We, we don't have to agree on every single thing. There are things that are non-negotiable. Like we're going to agree uh, on, the, on the divinity and the humanity of Christ, or we're parting ways. We're going we're gonna to agree on uh, the virgin birth or we've got to part ways. We're going to agree on the atonement of Jesus or we've got to part ways. But there are other things that we can, we can disagree happily on. So uh, let me make a distinction too. Uh, those top four, Joel, Joyce, Rob, and Benny, I would say are malicious false teachers. There's a, there's a very real difference between them and Jesus calling. Very real difference there. So, if you, have, if you have questions about that or comments, let's come talk to me afterward. Um, he goes on to say, not only will there be true and false prophets, I'm going to burn through the rest of these real quick. True and false prophets, but there will be true and false disciples. There will be people who seem to be genuine Christians who, who live among you, who share their life with you, that in the end they'll show themselves that they were not true Christians at all. He says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just because a person shows up at church, uses the right kind of language, calls Jesus Lord, does religious activities, does not make him or her a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a very scary passage in Hebrews 6, where it says, there will be those who participate in the things of the spirit, who share in the things of the church, and yet fall away. We don't know who they are. We can't point and say, yeah, you look like that kind of person. But just recently, uh, anybody know who um, Josh Harris is? Joshua Harris? 
He wrote a very popular book in the 90s called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Anybody know that book? <laughs> Just me and McKenzie. <laughs> Hugely influential in 90s youth groups in the early 2000s about how to approach, rightly approach dating and marriage. And Joshua Harris recently has rejected the faith, pastored a huge megachurch, and recently, just last year, came out and said, I'm, not only am I, am I stepping away from some doctrine, I actually don't believe any of it anymore. And there will be those who seem to be faithful, beloved Christian brothers and sisters who at some point fall away. And the Bible doesn't leave us thinking they lost their salvation. The Bible is very clear that they were never saved to begin with. And that's hard. And Jesus says, beware, be discerning. So he leaves us with this, this charge, two foundations. He says, uh, there's a man who built his house on the rock. Storm came, wind blew, and the house was there because it had a solid foundation. And then there was a person who built their house on the sand. Storm came, the wind blew, and it washed away because their foundation was false. And think about it. You ever notice how the sermon ends? It ends on, in verse 27. It ends on a scary note. Great was the fall of it. He doesn't end it on this positive, do-good note. He ends it on, hey, if you are foolish enough to build your house on the sand, there will be a tremendous fall. And so we were, we're, were greeted or, or confronted with the crowd's astonishment. That doesn't mean they were wowed. It means they were like the disciples in the boat. Who is this? It was a stunned, startled, confronted reaction. This guy is different. What he's saying is different. And so Matthew says that they were, they were, they were quite literally taken aback. Because he wasn't just saying, hey, there's this guy over here saying all this stuff like the scribes were. Scribes were saying, hey, God says in his word this, this, and this. And Jesus is saying, nope, I am telling you based on my authority. And so what he's doing here with this sermon is he is saying all throughout, I'm God. I am the authoritative creator, sustainer of the universe. And so they are, you see there on the bottom, the sermon is intensely life challenging so I hope uh, that our study of the sermon has been helpful I hope it's been encouraging I hope it's been challenging if you're not being challenged then sometimes we aren't learning so I hope I've challenged you along the way I try to do that on purpose because <laughs> we grow when we're challenged I hope I've done it in a helpful way but uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to tell you where we're going next. Let me pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to it with minds to understand it. We can hear the word. We can respond to the word. And God, I pray that we would heed the challenge that you leave with us. There are two paths, following you or not. Help us, O oh God, to see that the narrow path is hard, that it's frustrating, that it's full of strife. And yet at the end of it, O oh God, is eternal life with you. Which puts into perspective 
all that we endure. Paul says, I do not even consider comparing the glory that's coming with the struggle that we deal with now. Help us to see that with clarity. Help us, God, to see that we have to be people of the word so that we may discern what is right teaching and what is wrong teaching. Help us to be people of the word, holding fast to the gospel so that when we are challenged with the faltering faith of a brother or sister or some confrontation from the world, that we hold fast to the truth of the Bible. Help us, O God, to build our homes to build our lives upon the bedrock of gospel truth. We pray this, O God, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So uh, beginning next week and probably for a while, uh, I'm going to do a Through the Bible series. And what I'm going to do is each week I'm going to take one book of the Bible and I'm just going to give you an overview of it. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? What's the main idea? How does it fit into this thing? So that at the end of it, hopefully, we have this big, beautiful, robust understanding of what God was doing when he wrote this Bible. Because do you know which two books go together? All of them. (laughs) All 66 tell the same single story. And when we begin to see how God wove this tapestry together, it's a beautiful thing. So starting next week, we'll start with Genesis, and we'll have some fun. So I hope you plan to be here. I think it's going to be great. But until then, I hope you have a great week. See you Sunday.